This is the MG Car Club podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this week's episode, electric vehicles, should we be taking them seriously? And part two of my conversation with Jonathan Toolman, all about the cream cracker MGs. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello and welcome to another MG Car Club podcast. Wayne Scott here with you and Adam Sloman. He's back in Kimber House. Hello, mate. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's nice to be back in my office. It's mm. a bit chilly, um, but yeah, it's nice to be back at Kimber. It's it's a relatively spaced out building. I'm in an office on my own. Um, we are running with a with a smaller team, so we're all socially distanced um, and we're, we're keeping each other safe and looking after each other. So yeah, so it's, um, it's tier two, which is obviously not as um, restricted free as tier one would be um but it's nice to feel a little bit closer to normality absolutely as we head towards the festive season of course here on the mg car club podcast we continue to keep you informed and entertained from the best mg car club in the world and uh, we love to read out your messages as well you can get in touch with us really easily via mgpodcast.uk just as tim sandfort did all the way from illinois usa now, he wrote us a letter to say, it sounds like uh, the old style uh, home service, this Adam. <laughs> he wrote us a letter in, but he did know he, he wrote a, well, an email via the contact form at mgpodcast.uk. And it says in July of 2018, so that's two years ago, more than two years ago, I became the next caretaker. I like that phrase, the next caretaker of a 1971 MGB dressed in dark British racing green and shod with painted wire wheels. Being a podcast junkie, I promptly turned to my podcast app only to be disappointed that there was no MG-centric podcast. It wasn't in those days. We We just hadn't started it. I just happened upon your podcast in early December 2020. Welcome along. And I'm thrilled to have made this wonderful discovery. Thank you for helping me to further my fondness for the MG Mark, its rich history, and even further my fondness for my own car through listening to this podcast. Well, now onto a few details. He shares some details of his MGB with us. The history I know of it is that in the early 1990s, it was found by the prior owner in an estate sale. It was being sold by the widow of presumably its original owner. It had fallen into some degree of disrepair and required all-round renewing. The new owner, uh, which was the owner prior to Tim, took on the restoration from bonnet to boot. Uh, The quality of the bodywork lacks in a few places, but can be made right, and I swore I'd never take on a car project because of the complexity I perceived. Tim says he comes from a background in motorcycles, Uh, which to him seems rather more accessible, if you will. Well, it's true. You don't have bonnets and stuff on motorbikes. (laughs) Just fairings, and they clip off. Uh, But I chose to dive in at the front. However, I'm working my way backwards, (laughs) and I'm astonished at the decay in every rubber bit and can't wait to feel the difference in the driving experience once it's all renewed. My goal is that in May 2021, I will take my wife on a 20th anniversary cruise around the beautiful countryside of southwest Wisconsin. Thank you for investing yourselves and other resources into producing this podcast. I've enjoyed it thoroughly so far, and I look forward to listening through all the other episodes going back to the beginning. There's a hell of a lot of them, 35 in fact, and I'll excitedly await each week's new release. A friend from across the pond, Tim Sanford, in uh, Watsika, Illinois, in the USA. Nice. There we are, you see. Well, there's people listening to us all over the world, Adam. <laughs> no, it's a lovely story. And, you know, thank you, Tim, for, for getting in touch. Um, I can only imagine that um, you've got quite a bit of a project on your hands there. But um, like you say, it is accessible. The MGB is a, is an easy car to work on. Um, yeah, best of luck and, and keep us posted and, and send us some pictures. And the thing is, Tim, you mentioned your thanks for the resources that we put into this podcast. There is a really easy way that you can support this podcast to make sure that Adam and I can continue to keep making these episodes. And the best way to support this podcast is to join the MG Car Club and pay your annual membership. It's 
inclusive of so many benefits besides this podcast but in a small way it will go towards ensuring that adam and i every week can record this episode for you and the rest of the worldwide mg community and the easiest way is to go online to mgcc.co.uk and join the mg car club via that route and on top of all of the extra benefits you'll also get safety fast magazine delivered to you and of course there's a great network out in america already isn't there for the mg car club members yeah there's um there's all sorts of, of coverage for for mgs um looking at the mgb there's the north american mgb register they're a really good bunch of guys but um but yeah there's there's connections and support for um mg and mg car club members right across the state so yeah i would urge tim to uh, to get involved mgcc.co.uk come and join the uk mg car club and we'll put you in touch with all of the centers and registers and they will be able to help you from across the pond source parts for your mgb and give you some insight into some really useful technical tips and advice as well i know john watson knows everything there is to know about mgbs and if he doesn't know he knows a man who does so he can put you in touch with people so do come and join us and in joining us you help to support this podcast to continue and thanks for your message tim you can send us a message as well if you like and indeed support this podcast via mgpodcast.uk now, some uh, new appointments at MG Motor, Adam, and this is all part of their ever-ambitious route towards a million sales by the 100th anniversary of MG as a brand. And we've got two new guys who've joined the team, one of whom harks back to the MG Rover days. Yes, yeah, so um, really interesting to see MG sort of growing the the top level of the business um, because you know Daniel does a tremendous job, but also with that comes a tremendous amount of work, um, and it is a relatively small team they've got down in down in London. Um, so to see them add two um, two bodies to the team is really good, um, and obviously shows that the the, the brand is growing um, as we know it is here in the UK. Um, but interestingly, Guy, who uh, I believe joins them as a marketing director um is a former general manager of mg back in the uh, rover group and mg rover days well there we are and uh, david Pugh is the other guy who's uh, turned up to manage the marketing he's uh, been named as marketing director of mg motor uk david Pugh, uh, previously a consultant uh, worked across well 20 years worth of uh, marketing for various brands including Vauxhall. General Motors and JLR as well, in fact, um, most recently at Hyundai, launching its hybrid and EV sub-brands. So he'll know all there is to know, hopefully, about what they need to do to increase those sales and that growth yet further, as, of course, the focus remains on the electric vehicles here in the UK with the ZSEV, the new MG5, and the NGHS plug-ins as well. And they really are pushing this sort of uh, this move towards why wait till 2030 aren't they we covered this in the mg car clubs newsletter last week uh, you know they're, they're just reminding us that in 2030 we're all going to be driving electric cars if we buy something new so why wait till then get on with it get used to it now and in many ways it's it's very uncomfortable for us petrol heads to see conversation around you know the ever electric future but at least it's an mg badge on the front that's the consolation we can take that's the thing you know we if we look back um over mg's history you know there have been points where there have been huge changes in in mg as we know it you know be it the the move away from from chassis to monocoque construction or or even you know the, the the biggest change that we can probably think of is when the brand um fell under under chinese management um but like you say the important thing is that mg can continue um into the future it can inspire new owners and introduce them to the brand and the community and the club. You know, we saw that when we spoke to, to Josh Langstaff a couple of weeks ago. You know, the, the modern cars can be a gateway to introduce people to um, all the wonderful history and heritage that comes with MG and to the car club. Um, the important thing is with the changes to uh, vehicle drivetrains is that no one's coming to, to collect your MGB and take it away or your MG midget and take it away and stop you driving it. 
even when the ban comes in for for new vehicles, there's still going to be millions and millions of vehicles on the road that that run on petrol and diesel. Um, So those vehicles will need to be supported for a long time to come. And the classic car industry, as we've always said, brings so much income into the UK there will be something to support those vehicles for for years to come. So, yeah, electric vehicles are different. Um, it's a big change, and, you know, we can all be a little bit resistant to change, be it, you know, a different brand of cereal or a different kind of fuel in your car. Um, but the important thing is that we, we work with the change, we're embracing of the change, and we make sure that the MG Car Club, and as an extension, MG, are involved in that future. I always try and sort of mark out the difference between historic vehicles that we must protect and preserve on the roads and fight for our freedoms to use them unhindered and those internal combustion engines in our historic MGs, our MGBs, our Zs, those are vehicles that are becoming classics and are currently classics and are currently classed as historics. That's a different conversation than having to embrace the future of daily transport of tomorrow and There's no point in us sort of standing in the middle of this wave that's coming because we won't be able to hold it back. But what we must do is make sure that the MGs of the past, those petrol engine MGs um, that, uh, you know, that we all enjoy as historic vehicles, as classic cars, as our hobby and our passion, they remain preserved and remain able to use the roads alongside whatever electric or hydrogen even future that we might have going forward from 2030. And as you say, you know, even if you take the fact that it's very possible that two million electric vehicles could be sold every single year from 2030 onwards. Even if you sold it from now, two million electric vehicles every year till 2030, you're still not going to get anywhere near touching the tip of the iceberg of the 38 million petrol engined and diesel engined vehicles that are on the road. So there's going to be a huge number of vehicles still left after 2030 and that is hopefully going to ensure that there's a plentiful fuel supply and make sure that four courts of petrol stations are still around for years to come what we do in many more decades from then is the difficult question and uh, those will be uh, questions we'll have to answer as we go forward but you know it's something we always get isn't it adam whenever we talk about modern mgs evs whenever we write an article on the new on the website we get this massive flood back of angry people trying to stop uh, the uh, the world from moving forward or to argue against electric vehicles really we just need to be happy that the change is coming with an mg badge attached to the front of it and that's the best consolation we'll get yeah, exactly. You know, I get that people are passionate. I get that people are concerned. Um, but you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I'm not. Uh, I'm not likely to adopt an electric vehicle anytime soon. Um, personally, for me, the the issues around the charging network and the infrastructure and range um, don't suit my lifestyle. Um, but Andy, our magazine editor here, um, did make the change. He went from a, a one-liter ZS SUV to a ZS EV, uh, and he's beyond thrilled with it. You know, the car costs him very, very little to run. Um, it works perfectly for him and his family. Um, so it's a case of, of each to their own and horses for courses, I think. Um but yeah, it'll be certainly be interesting to see where where MG goes uh, with this in the in the next couple of years and and in the time beyond that. What will be really interesting will be the reaction that they get should they launch one of these electric sports cars because people have been so desperate for a new MG sports car. Are they going to turn their nose up at it if it's got you know instant torque and a range of two hundred odd miles and and but doesn't take fuel in one end um rather a plug socket will be interesting to see quite the reception it gets yeah well sports cars worry me slightly in electric vehicle form because there's very little you can do to differentiate them that's the problem and i was looking at the brand new lotus that was launched at salon privé at blenheim palace back in september and as radical and beautiful looking thing as the stylists have achieved it looks lovely it will just drive like every other electric vehicle out there and it will feel pretty much the same as my dad's Jaguar I-Pace I can imagine because electric vehicles have nothing that differentiates them 
You know, there's none of that. Is it front wheel drive? Is it rear wheel drive? Is it mid engined? Is it rear engined? Is it the howl of a Ferrari V10 compared to a Lamborghini V12? Or, you know, those things that differentiate the driving experience between sports cars. And that's why you buy them. You don't buy them for, for, for practicality or for daily transport. How will you make that differentiation when you're creating electric vehicle sports cars? Because you can't rely on design alone because, frankly, you can't see that when you're sat inside the cockpit as a driver. So I do worry about what the future of driving experience is and whether the pressure of all of that driving experience, driving for pleasure, will be put onto historic vehicles, perhaps. Or maybe some other technologies that we haven't even thought about are waiting in the wings. Maybe hydrogen is the answer to performance vehicles in the future. Um, certainly, if you look at the World Endurance Series and uh, the races at Le Mans, uh, the work that they're putting into renovating the pit lane at Le Mans includes hydrogen lines in the plans. That I know. Um, and also there's talk of this invention of what they're calling... Um, synthetic fuels isn't there synthetic petrol and diesel replications that basically just put out water at the other end or or create lower amounts of uh, of carbon than you would expect from the current petrol and diesel that you buy at the pump so a difficult future for the sports hyper and performance cars i think in that how do they differentiate themselves in that driving experience that's going to be interesting to see yeah that's it and as we know with all things you know the the money talks Clearly, there is a market. Clearly, there is always going to be demand because not everyone is going to take their classic car um, and swap the engine for a, for a battery pack. That's not possible. That's not practical. Um, and, you know, we've spoken in the past about how that changes the, the very character of a vehicle. So there is a demand and there will be a need, I believe, for a synthetic alternative to petrol and diesel now i know that the audi and the vw group have done some research into into this area um but i firmly believe that some bright spark somewhere or some collective of bright sparks somewhere um will be working on this and we will see something uh come along that will allow us to continue to use these vehicles in a in a more environmentally friendly and an environmentally safe manner and before anyone starts arguing that classic cars are smoky and dirty and they're going to all kill us with their pollution such a rubbish we've got the figures to back it up 0.2 percent of the total mileage traveled in the uk is attributed to historic vehicles and when you add up the carbon footprint of a historic vehicle in comparison to a modern electric vehicle it is an utter fraction over the course of say a 10-year period and there's a very good demonstration of this actually and i recommend you anyone who's interested in this subject to go and watch this video we'll put it into the mg car club newsletter actually this uh, this weekend so um keep your eye on your inboxes it'll be on the featured video within our newsletter but it's um it's a video by um, Harry Metcalf, who a lot of you will be familiar with, Harry's Garage, and he's run this YouTube channel for a number of years now and uh, talks about farming and classic cars and all that kind of thing. And he's done a very good um, video on this subject that we're discussing here, where he actually calculated the amount of carbon output that a historic vehicle puts out over a 10-year period in comparison to his electric vehicle. It was actually massively, massively smaller an output than the modern electric vehicle um, because of the fact that the manufacturing costs are all gone and in the past. They're done, you know, in terms of carbon costs. Also, they're a lot lighter. And also the fact that they're driven very few miles. And I think he based it on the average of about 1,000 or 1,500 miles a year. Um, but an interesting video to watch, actually, and uh, I must thank him for uh, including the figures that the MG Car Club members all contributed to, of course, the FBHVC uh, National Historic Vehicle Survey in that argument as well. So, yeah, it's good to see that people out there, especially amongst the YouTube influencer community, are starting to discuss these issues and actually present the facts in a very balanced 
proper way because we need to get this message across to the general public who think that our mgbs for example are smoky nasty things that are killing us all they're not that's such a rubbish and what we need to do is embrace the future whilst protecting our past and the cars that we love to drive for our pastime and because we have an interest in our transport heritage Christmas is coming, Adam. On to a completely different subject now. Christmas is on its way, and what do we do over Christmas? Well, of course, we plonk ourselves down. We get ourselves our MG gift box with our fudge... fudge pack in there and our mug and uh, our various other mg car club gifts gathered together and around us and we watch something on the tv uh, now i've picked out my sort of uh, recommendation really for a film to watch over the christmas period if you're in america this is called ford versus ferrari if you're here in uh, europe in the uk it was called le mans 66 and it's about a bit of a hero really if you watch the trailer you might think it's all about ford gt40s and it's the story of carol shelby and in a way it is yes it is but actually it's really about him and his very good friend ken miles who of course is an mg hero isn't he adam yeah so um ken miles's story really couldn't be any more different to to shelby um shelby was the all-american hero um, Ken Miles was was very different. He was uh, born in Birmingham. He was a Brummie, um, and he started off working at Wolseley uh, when he was about fifteen, I think. Um, he fought in World War Two. Uh, even ended up on the beaches of, of Normandy uh, during D Day in a tank. He had a huge passion for motorsport, though. And in the early nineteen fifties, after World War Two, I think he'd had enough of things being a bit cold and a bit. Gray here in in post-war britain um so he up sticks and and headed off to california but before that he Um, was a he was a competitor with the vscc wasn't he um and he 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 raced really old bugattis alfa romeos alvises uh fraser nashes stuff like that cars that even by the 1950s when just before he moved to america would have been old cars you know they were like 20 30 years old so yeah interesting that he was sort of a, a hobby racer really wasn't he yeah, I mean, he, he raced everything. If it had four wheels and an engine, um, he was he, he raced, you know, what even even before then, you know, his first um, introduction to motorsport was, was with motorcycles. Um, but he graduated to, to four wheels. Um, and like I said, he then emigrated to the States. Um, and he was a service manager for MG, um, had a lot of responsibility for, for MG in California, um, but he couldn't quite find the right car to compete in. So he built his own. Um, he built the, the flying shingle, as it was known, yeah. uh, which was based on a TD. Um, and he very quickly started winning races up and down the west coast of the US. He, he quickly started to build a, a real name for himself. And that was ultimately what led him to the attentions of Shelby um, and, and to Le Mans. Well, it was called the um, the flying shingle because he basically panel beat it himself didn't he and it looked pretty rough around the edges and there's a few references to that in this film uh, there's some references to him being a service manager for mg because it starts with him working on someone's mg in the garage and him telling them look this is a performance engine here i think it's i think it was a reference to the known problems with the twin cam mgas actually uh, this is a performance engine here you must rev it and drive it properly otherwise you'll just coke it up and that's kind of how the film starts and there is a reference to the flying shingle um it, they don't actually show it but uh, it's a reference to that in that uh, the scrutineers tell him that he's in breach of a certain rule so instead he just goes and beats a hole out of something to make it fit <laughs> yeah, or something yeah. so it's a very yeah. good part of the film we won't give too much of it away if you haven't seen it you must watch it um but um yeah don't be put off by the fact that it seems to be all about Ford GT40s. It's a real good MG-centric film in many ways because it is a story of Ken Miles, who tragically, his life ended at only 47 in 1966, testing in a GT40. Fantastic story of a great British driver and someone who is uh, very much a part of MG history as well. That's the sort of uh, MG film I would watch over Christmas, but we do have a whole selection of DVDs and various other things you can entertain yourself with out of the mg car club shop haven't we adam 
Yeah, we do. Um, we've got uh, the first one I'd sort of like to point out is uh, a Muppets Christmas Carol. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine for the kids there. Um, no, there are a, a great range of DVDs available through the club shop, um, covering everything from MG Live through to period rallies. Um, through to BMC and, and work competition stuff. Um, yeah, there's some really good meaty DVDs to, to really get your teeth into. We haven't quite covered the, the film and entertainment side of things, but if you want something uh, interesting and, and uh, educational and informative, then yeah, our, our DVDs are, are there for uh, and right for the picking. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll have a look in a bit more detail at those DVDs and some of the inspiration that we might be able to offer you if the telly gets rubbish over Christmas from the MG Car Club shop. We'll have a look at that in just a moment, but uh, now we'll get the second part of my fascinating conversation with Jonathan Toolman. He is the son of Morris Toolman, who is, of course, one of the works drivers of the MG Trials team, the Cream Crackers. Hear the second part of that conversation next. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Returning to our conversation about trialling now, and in particular, the MG Works Trials teams of the 1930s, the cream cracker cars with the son of the works driver Morris Toolman, Jonathan Toolman, as we pick up my conversation at the point where we discuss how amazing it is that these cars are still trialling all these years later. I found a really interesting uh, passage by Cecil Kimber that I read out on episode 32 of the MG Car Club podcast when he was explaining that relationship between manufacturers and motorsport and how a manufacturer must go about using motorsport to sell cars. And Cecil Kimber in the 1930s was pushing this idea of an affordable sports car in MG that was not only accessible to the masses, as much as that could have been in the 1930s, but also reliable enough to use as your transport to replace the horse and car and use the MG sports car. And so in many ways, this was the best way that he could demonstrate to the world that this kind of small, fragile little sports car wasn't fragile at all and could take on some quite serious abuse as they all got on the trials. And isn't it an amazing thing today that if you go and watch the extra trial or the Land's End or the Edinburgh, these cars are still competing 90 years later. We have to acknowledge the uh, skills and uh, commitment um, of the drivers um, because in some ways the cars were rather frail. Um, certainly looking at um, some of the Cream Cracker and Musketeer um, documents at Kimber House, uh, which they let me look at um, uh, last year, um, that after every trial, the drivers wrote a report uh, for Abingdon and provided sometimes quite a long list of things that needed attention. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, what what, um, what is interesting, I think, is that, as I say, for the, the first Cream Cracker team, which uh, made its debut on the land's end of 1935, uh, when they appeared in their cream and brown livery for the first time. Um, as I say, that was definitely an amateur team. They were running alongside the Musketeers, who w was the works team. Uh, as I understand it, the cars were owned by the works and the drivers were all Abingdon employees. Um, so uh, there, there were the there was the sort of the works team and then the amateur but supported uh, t team, um, and Abingdon built this is a, going off at a slight tangent, but for uh, George Easton they built three uh, PAs for Le Mans, for the so-called Dancing Daughters, the all women. Um, t team of, um, of three PAs for, for for Le Mans 
And if that was not a demonstration of durability, I don't know what was, because we had three cars racing for 24 hours, and they must have been racing pretty hard. Um, and apparently the only problem they had was a single taillight bulb in one of the cars, which I think is just staggering. Yeah. Some um, modern teams would be jealous of that record. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed they would. Um, so, I mean, the girls did um, did a wonderful job. Um, uh, and the cars came back to uh, Abingdon, so this is June um, of 35. Um, and I don't know whether uh, Eastern had purchased the cars or borrowed them. I'm not quite clear about that. But anyway, they they returned to, to, to Abingdon and they were sort of sitting about at Abingdon. And um, the six-cylinder Musketeer cars, uh, for whatever reason, were were sold on. Uh, and so the Musketeers were without their muskets, if you like, um, for the next MCC trial, which would have been the Torquay trial and rally in July of 35. Um, and so they um, uh, they rehashed these Le Mans, ex-Le Mans cars, um, bore them out to PB uh, engine size, um, repainted them in cream and brown, um, and lo, lo and behold, you had three new musketeer cars for the um, uh, Torquay trial. Um, this caused my father some great concern, and he wrote to Cecil Kimber, because you then suddenly had two teams of midgets. Before, you had a team of midgets and a team of magnets, uh, and, and that was fine. But for the Torquay trial, you had two teams of midgets. Um, and um, uh, so he was concerned that uh, the cream crackers would be sort of dispensed with because why why do we need a team of cream crackers when we've got a team of works um, uh, midget uh, musketeers? Um, but uh, he had a response from Cecil Kimber saying, no, don't worry, we're, we're going to stick, uh, stick with you. Uh, and of course, only a few weeks later, um, they built the L-type Musketeer specials for the Musketeer team, the um, uh, 1408cc six-cylinder uh, cars, which were must have been pretty formidable um, machines because uh, uh, they weren't blown uh, initially, but they, they were blown a little bit later on. Uh, and um, what was almost a, just a slightly stretched P-type, really, with um, 1,400cc six-cylinder, so they must have gone like a rocket. Mm. Your dad was on the winning team in both 35 and 36, wasn't he? What do you know of what that win meant to him and the rest of the team? Was it something that he was proud of for the for the rest of his life? Did he really covet that, or was it just sort of another weekend out with the lads having fun? My enormous regret um, in life is that I never talked to my father about any of this. He 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 hardly mentioned it. Um, he died when I was twelve, so in a way we never quite got the opportunity. Um, and the, the the only thing I really remember was that um, we were on holiday in Cornwall and he decided to go and look for one of the trials hills that had been used on the expert's trial. Um, so we parked in some little lane, left left mother sitting in the car, and my brother and I and dad started walking across fields looking, looking for trials <laughs> hills, um, which we have now located. Um, but uh, um, I, I guess he was. I mean, it would have... Yeah, I mean, who who wouldn't be plan, uh, you know, proud of uh, being as um, uh, as successful um, as they were? Mm-hmm. Um, he 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 got the name, and I've heard all of this secondhand, but uh, he he got the name the Colonel, 
um, because apparently he was quite good at sort of dishing out the orders. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it, it seems that um, he, uh, he pretty, pretty much got, um, got his own way. Uh, somebody once told me that um, my father didn't fool, uh, suffer fools gladly. Now that's entirely wrong because he suffered me quite happily. But, <laughs> um, but uh, perhaps I'm a special case uh, as far as uh, dad was concerned. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, but um, uh, of course, the more success that they had, the better justification they had with Kimber to continue and build them special cars. And um, for 1936, um, they did build them some cars. Uh, as you probably know, that the original team was Dad, Jack Bastock, and um, uh, Robert McDermott. Um, and Bastock and Mac, uh, as he was called, um, went off and uh, um, defected from the Cream Crackers and took over the new um, L-type uh, special uh, Musketeer cars. Um and I have a letter from Bast uh, from sorry from McDermott to my father, um, because Abingdon were um, trying to persuade them to buy some uh, PBs uh, because uh, um, the uh, advertising um, uh, advantage of uh, advertising su uh, success of a PA when the current production was PB it was obviously somewhat limited um, but they were uh, shall we say reluctant to spend another 222 pounds or whatever it was for a new PB um, when they felt they had perfectly good dad's case and then Max case uh, supercharged uh, PAs and um, so I, I think uh, probably Mac uh, jumped and took Bass w w with him um, because those L-type Musketeers were works own cars. Uh, he wouldn't have to buy them. Uh, they'd just be simply uh, provided. Um, and for whatever reason, um, and the, you can see in some of the letters, that uh, I have from, from Abingdon to, to Dad that the policy changed um, during the latter part of 1935 um, and they built uh, three special PBs for the Cream Crackers um, that debuted at the, on the Exeter, um, so December 35. And contrary to what has been reported, they, it's again claimed that these PBs were privately owned by the drivers. Now, I am sure they were not. I'm sure that they were works-owned throughout their trial in time. Um, and there's, there's evidence for that. There, there is no, I've seen no letter saying, uh, please send us a cheque for £222 or... Uh, actually, as there were special aluminium-bodied blown cars with straight-cut differentials and all the rest of it, there would have been obviously an awful lot more than that. Um, but uh, there's there's nothing about that. But what, what to me is overwhelming evidence that they were Abingdon owned is that the contract said that the the cars must be returned to Abingdon on the Monday or by the Monday after every trial and collected from Abingdon on Friday. And they had an agreed program of events and they had to ask permission if they wanted to do any other events with the cars, which sometimes was declined. Um, so if the drivers owned the cars, they couldn't possibly have Abingdon saying, oh, no, you can't go and do the Knott trial or you can't go and do the Percy Butler trial or whatever. Um, they would say, well, it's my car. I'll use it when I want to use it. Um, so I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that the, the PB team w w was a, a, full, a full factory team. Um, the drivers did sign notes sign letters, uh, copies of which I have, 
which stated categorically their amateur nature in that the drivers were not paid, uh, except they were paid expenses, uh, and they were paid rewards, so you, they would get five pounds, I think, for a first class award, a gold medal or whatever, and an extra five pounds for the team award. Um, then, then for 1937, uh, when they got the T-types, um, the policy changed again, and they did buy those cars. And I have a letter saying we acknowledge receipt of your check, and but they bought them on the basis that they would sell, sell them back to Abingdon at the end of the season at a pre-agreed price. Presumably, they bought them at a significant discount. Then I, I guess so. Yes. Yes. It makes you wonder whether they had some kind of other support then, because I'm just thinking of how I feel on the Monday morning after doing the Exeter, even even in modern times. Uh, that's quite a feat to get those cars back to Abingdon on Monday, having done that all through the night or weekend, isn't it, really? Especially in the 30s. Yes, I think that if you were an MG-supported driver, you would have to be in a sort of business where you could take Monday mornings off and Friday, probably a good deal of Friday, especially for a Land's End or whatever, you would need to take Friday off, wouldn't you? My father printed newspapers, and can I just say, absolutely no connection whatsoever with the Toolman Motors that were MG dealers in London. Right, okay. Uh, <laughs> I did wonder... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yes, and uh, very understandably, lots of people think there was a connection, and there is no doubt that uh, the gentleman who run, ran Toolman Motors uh, sort of pretended to be the ex-works cars driver. <laughs> really? <Right>. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's come to light that he was a genuine Mr. Toolman, a, a 28th cousin, 25 times removed, and I don't think my father and this other Mr. Toolman ever met or ever corresponded or whatever. And I believe somebody did say to my father that he ought to do something about it. But Dad was a, a busy man, and then that time, this is post-war now, of course, so he had a young family, and um, I don't think anything was, was done about it. And it didn't really affect him anyway. Uh, he was up in Lancashire, and this is a company down in London, and uh, he he wasn't in in the motor business, um, so it was sort of pretty pretty um, irrelevant to him really. Having a, a bit of a techie look at the cars for just a moment, what evidence can you see on the cars to this day of the ways that they were modified for trialing? We mentioned the windscreens earlier on, and I know that they were fitted with the Marshall seventy five superchargers and um, straight cut. Um, gears as you as you said earlier on what other evidence is there that they were they're they're not your normal pbs for example oh things like they had modified clutches they had modified gear ratios in the gearboxes they had different spring springing they had extra dampers they had those little stops on the gear lever to prevent you um accidentally selecting um, the wrong gear so uh, and, and my PA has, has two of them. You could have a lock against reverse uh, so that once you'd set off on the trials hill, you would, you would lock out um, reverse. And they also had a lock out against thir third and fourth because on the trials hill, typically, of course, you only use first and second gears. Um, so it was, it was that sort of thing. It was the... Um, aluminium bodies yeah and so the 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 suspension they had uh, some mods the steering the aluminium uh, bodies is quite interesting isn't it because that is the sort of thing you do to a race car to make it light but of course what we do in trials cars is pack lead weights over the driving wheels so interesting approach i think yes I, i'm not clear whether the aluminium body included all of the rear tub but it was certainly the bonnet um, and the cycle wings at the front um, uh, and the valance and that sort of thing. Um, it's a, and, uh, you know, P-type bonnets certainly pretty heavy in steel. Um, so that they certainly save, save quite, quite a bit there. One thing that uh, has come out um, 
My father borrowed one of the musketeer cars to take to the Cregantlet hill climb in Northern Ireland, which he enjoyed uh, for many years, taking um, the PA that I now have and later T-types and things. Um, but but he borrowed one of the L-type musketeers. Um, and I don't follow the logic of Abingdon here, but they suggested to him that he should either carry about one and a quarter hundredweight of lead uh, in the back of the car or run with a, certainly run with a fuel tank brimmed full. Um, it didn't prove to be successful because um, basically the differential couldn't cope with this. He broke two axles. <laughs> Um, and I think that's hardly surprising really they could break axles on mud Mm. and to put it onto tarmac uh, when um, you know an extra hundred weight of lead in the back would okay improve traction off the start line but probably only improve traction for how far do you spin your wheels for 10 yards, 15 yards, mm. uh, and you've got, how long's Krugamplet Hill Climb? 1,700 yards or something mm. or other. Mm. So you gain an advantage for 10 yards and then a disadvantage for 1,800 yards or something sure. or other. Um, and it was hardly surprising that um, it, Dad managed to uh, destroy two differentials in one day. <laughs> <laughs> And Amazing. one of them was, uh, I think one of them was brand new. The differential was uh, one of the weak points. And for for one of the trials, they wanted a ratio change anyway. They kept swapping diff, diff ratios like mad um, for different events. Um, and for for one trial, I think it was a Barnstable um Dad said they wanted uh, the cream crackers wanted a different diff ratio, and they would have straight cut. And Abingdon fitted three pairs of brand new straight cut crown wheels and pinions. Wow! Um, and and Dad broke one of them uh, on the trial, uh, which unfortunately led to his disqualification because they carried spare diffs on the cars. Um, that would be a pretty good piece of ballast anyway, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. But unfortunately, uh, Abingdon had supplied the wrong spare diffs, or at least the one in... Yeah, I think they must have all been, been wrong. Um, and they'd supplied lock diffs, which were permitted on some events, but on, but not on that particular trial. Uh, and so to to continue um, on the event or even just to drive home of course dad had to fit a lock diff um, and that was um, not allowed so uh, I guess he must have disqualified himself because nobody else would have known really Mm -hmm. Uh, Costa Green Crackers are almost certain uh, win um, of that event It's fantastic stories and um, it's really nice to know Jonathan that you're following in those footsteps and still trialling to this day. Um, and I know you've campaigned a Marlin and you're now in the comforts of a X90. And uh, all of us who are still in sports cars uh, look at those with great envy when the weather's bad on trials. Um, but <laughs> do you think that trialling's lost something now that manufacturers are no longer entering works teams anymore? I think we've lost a, um, lost an element of fun, really, um, which... Um which is a shame. I mean, if the if the manufacturers were involved, then I don't know the cars would be so specialised. You get sort of Dakar rally type machines. Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, very good point. Yes, it'd be um, beyond the reach of most normal people, which is the charm of trialling in the first place, isn't it? Really. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always thought that people say things like, "Oh, you know, the internet has." changed our lives well actually i don't really think it has um that the exciting changes actually all happened in the victorian era if you think what happened between 1840 the advent of trains now there was something that revolutionized people's lives because before that most people stayed in the town or village where they were born 
uh, and suddenly you had means of going a hundred miles to the seaside or wherever and the, and then towards the end of the 19th century you had electricity just think of the revolution that is instead of lighting candles and mantel lamps and things uh, you could flick a switch and the light came on um, and, and then uh, a year or two later you had radio and telephones you could talk to somebody a hundred miles away instead of writing them a letter um, just you know these were the things I think that changed lifestyles um, out, out of out of all recognition really so I would have loved to have lived at sort of Edwardian era, the first cars that come along. So exciting, just not true. Uh, but you'd only want to live in the Ed- Edwardian era with a number of provisos. One is that you were rich because there were a hell of a lot of people who were near to starving. Well, perhaps not exactly starving, but living in extremely modest circumstances and uh, very poor housing and, and things. So you'd want to be pretty well off. You'd want to be healthy, no National Health Service. Um, and somehow you wanted to avoid a couple of world wars as well. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, navigate your way around those problems. It kind of puts things into perspective for today, really, doesn't it? It does. Let's hope there's many more decades and many more generations to come with trialling and many more times we see MGs from the 1930s up on the hills of the southwest for the mcc trials and um absolutely right jonathan it's been fantastic talking to you about that amazing historical story and i look forward to seeing you out on another trial soon well i shall see you on the exeter all being well absolutely thanks for joining us on the mg car club podcast great mg car club podcast safety fast the magazine of the mg car club Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk. Well, I don't know about you, Adam. I've really enjoyed hearing Jonathan Tillman's stories of trialling there, and it's been great to get a real insight into the Cream Cracker MGs, the Works MG Trials team that took part in those Exeter and Land's End trials uh, before the Second World War. And back then it was a crucial part of MG's route to marketing these rugged sports cars to the world. Back then, it wasn't just about hobbyists going out and flying through forests in their sports cars. It really was part of the world's motorsport scene. And the UK led it from the very beginning of the 1900s. So uh, a really nice really nice story there from uh, Jonathan who uh, brilliant to hear is still involved with the trialing of course so thank you so much to him for coming on and thanks to the uh, Southwest Centre and the Midland Centre for all of their input into putting that interview together as well now on to shop stuff Adam and uh, we did promise to have a look through the DVDs at the beginning of this podcast and i've had a look through the dvds i'm now an expert on rebuilding xpag engines which is brilliant <laughs> from the uh, t register uh, also we've got the 50th anniversary of the mgb a year to remember you can pick up from there especially nice to watch this year as we remember don hater of course who we lost in 2020 mm. uh, you can relive mg live from 2009 as well with a dvd there but if dvds aren't your thing then perhaps have a look at some of the books this is all via shop.mgcc.co.uk and i've picked my top book adam but what's yours so my pick would be uh it's a book uh the mgc gts lightweights um which basically covers the story of the last um works mgs built here in abingdon um i've had the privilege of, of i've not driven rmo uh, i'd be too too scared to uh, to drive a car as rare as that i will hold my hands up and say um but i've had the privilege of of knowing the owner um in fact my son james got to got to sit behind the wheel um and i find those cars fascinating because they had such potential um and yeah the this book um is a real in-depth look at those last abingdon built cars 
Um, it explains the process of how the, the aluminium panels were, were constructed. Um, there's photos in there that have never been seen before of, of the cars um, of undergoing restoration. Yeah, there's some fantastic stuff in there. So that would be my pick. Um, a lovely book. Um, and the thing is, if you buy like a big hefty almost like a coffee table book you know that whoever gets it is going to get hours and hours of, of enjoyment from that so that's that's available in the shop at the moment that's in stock that's 35 pounds um so that would be my pick mate well mine is a bit of a historical look at mgs because you know me i like to read the stories of history and uh, i'm a bit of a motorsport man so i would pick the works mgs second edition and we've had him on the podcast the author of this book mike allison fantastic stories he's got to tell about mgs anything he doesn't know about mgs frankly isn't worth knowing and peter browning as well combined to create this basically a portfolio sharing the story of pre-war and post-war racing mgs from rallies trials and record breaking the full set of mgs that won stuff broke records and made people famous is included in this book it's great so that's available now on the mg car club shop shop.mgcc.co.uk my second one because i'm going to be greedy adam and take two uh, because this is quite an interesting story if you hadn't thought about it actually is the rv8 manufacturing story was it all old bits of mgb tack welded together by british motor heritage or was there more to it than that well you'll find out by this fantastic book it's a well it's a research paper to be honest it's an mg car club publication by christopher allen and george wilder and it's called the mgrv8 the manufacturing story and you can buy it through the shop now to keep you occupied and learning through christmas and of course if you're interested in the more modern mgs we've got craig cheatham's new book this only came out last month actually the mgz cars the first time i think really anyone's written an exhaustive book on the z cars isn't it it is and you know those cars are are rapidly moving into into classic territory which makes me feel very old um but it's high time that they got um a proper book dedicated to them so um so yeah it's a really good read there's loads of information in there and if you're a fan of those z cars um yeah it's uh, it's indispensable really well of course craig did own some of the very early zeds that uh, mg zt that we used at the arena at mg live to do the detailing mm. demonstrations on was uh, an ex craig cheatham car so uh, he knows these cars inside out and yeah as you say it's a it's a mark really that uh, the mg z cars are being treated as cherished classics at last which yeah as i now say that makes me feel old as well uh, <laughs> um, but it's great to see them being treated to a book that tells their story and yeah it's a sign of the times isn't it that those cars are being seriously considered as classics moving forward so now you've got no excuse to be bored over christmas we've given you films to watch dvds to buy books to consider and by the way there are many many more books i think we've got over 50 titles listed on the mg car club shop you can find them all at shop.mgcc.co.uk have a browse through get yourself some reading material or presents perhaps for the christmas ahead and you'll be well entertained if the telly gets rubbish i think we've sorted everyone out adam i think so mate but um while we're talking about christmas i've got to ask you how are you getting on with your mg christmas shopping for our upcoming christmas special because i'm done i'm I'm waiting for one parcel to arrive i'm waiting for one parcel to arrive and then i will be lovingly wrapping them uh, and sending them up to uh, to Scott Towers, uh, which I think is what your house is called, um, and uh, we'll be able to to share our Christmas gifts on our Christmas special. So, h- how are you getting? Well, on you see, you're like the modern man compared to me because I do all my <laughs> shopping Christmas Eve, as you as you probably imagine, last minute and in a rush. Uh, so, I'm not doing anywhere near as well as you. I knew you'd got a few bits, but done, completed, and finished. Oh my God, yeah. I'm, you're way ahead of me. You're going to end up at the local petrol station for me on Christmas Eve, aren't you? And I'll get a bottle of screen wash, <laughs> a magic tree air freshener, uh, and some wiper blades that don't fit my car. Yeah, but everything I'll have 
taken a permanent marker and written MG on because, of course, <laughs> these do have to be MG-branded gifts. So I think, to be honest with you, I'm going to have to concede here that I am struggling, okay? And I'm going to turn to the loyal listeners of our podcast. Look, listeners, you've got to help me out here. I've been doing these podcasts. This is 36 of them now for your entertainment and your enjoyment. Now you've got to help me because <laughs> I've got to get something <laughs> impressive for Adam. And basically, if you didn't hear this yet, this was uh, something we launched last week uh, on episode 35. Our challenge that we set each other was to find the weirdest and wackiest MG-related gifts that you could buy, and we're going to present them to each other as part of the Christmas special of the MG Car Club podcast. Now, as you can hear, Adam has been very efficient, and he's completed his purchases already. Um, (laughs) I haven't started mine yet. So uh, I'm now asking you, the listeners, to help me out. You've got to send some suggestions. Links to eBay are fine. Anything like that. Send them in to mgpodcast.uk. Just click on the contact button there and get in touch with the show. You can fill the contact form out. Please help Team Wayne because I'm in desperate need of you, the listeners' assistance on this. And with that, I'm going to go and panic and go shopping. So (laughs) until next week on the MG Car Club podcast with me, Wayne Scott, see ya. Cheers, guys. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk